I would have learned more about communication because you know you come out and you know all this technical stuff to do but you just cannot convey it to the patient. Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm David Keir and this episode is a flashback. We've come a long way since these episodes were recorded, but I want to come back to our humble beginnings. The podcast since then has gone on to have almost 400,000 listens. We've had a whole range of team who have made an immense impact, many of them way beyond what I could have even dreamed of. And I'm very proud of that. This is something that I want to see continue for a very long time in the future. But right now, the team needs a break. Most of our team is either a new grad or student and exams and all these other things going on. So we're doing some flashbacks episodes you may not have heard of. Some of these are me recording in my early recording days. So I think my inexperience can be heard. But in the end, these are important episodes with great people. And I'm very grateful they came on at the humble beginnings of this podcast. I hope you enjoy these. I hope you learn the lessons that I learned back then. And I hope you continue enjoying this podcast for many years to come. Thank you to all those who listen, all those who have supported it, and please continue to give us the feedback that helps make this podcast help more dental students become great dentists. Hello everyone, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm pretty excited to get this ball rolling. This is the first episode, and this episode we have Mark Hassard. Dr. Mark Hassard is a communication and efficiency teacher. I've been learning from Mark for quite a while. He runs a blog at therelaxeddentist.com and over the years, there's been many, many things that I've learned and picked up to help me in my communication. In the discussion today, we find out the advice he would have given himself when he was a new graduate. Mark shows us exactly how he presents large treatment plans efficiently and effectively to his patients. And reassuringly, communication is something everyone can learn. Even Mark himself, he said he had to focus on this when he was a young dentist and really make this a strength of his. Mark's got over 38 years experience in dentistry. He owned two private practices, spent years locuming and has recently stepped back from clinical practice to focus on teaching. Mark has a lot to share and I think his communication tips will help all new graduates. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Dr. Mark Hassard, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. How are you today? Oh, very well, thank you, David. Thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. I've heard about you quite a while ago and I've wanted to have this conversation for quite a long time. Early on, before I was a dentist, I asked a pretty influential dentist who employs a lot of graduates what he recommends people do when they first start and what they need to learn. And The first thing he said is communication and the second thing was how to get yourself out of surgical problem so when he said communication he said your name so oh, wow. making, a, making a good influence there yeah well that, that's that's very nice uh, i mean i've been running the communication courses now for about four or five years and i saw a gap in the market for something that was really systematic because the thing is I, I think dentists i mean i am one so i can say this i think dentists we're sequential thinkers we like step one step two step three And some of the courses I've been to out there, it's sort of like they give you this big box of tools, but you really struggle to put it all together. So um, I'm I'm thrilled that uh, an influential dentist gave you that advice and very, very, uh, very grateful anyway. It must have been quite early on in your 
teaching career actually because it was about four years ago i'd say so you're making influences from the start that's pretty good yeah oh well very good very good thank you so the aim of this podcast we want to get a really good idea of how you got to where you are as well as getting some tips and tricks that new graduate dentists like myself and students can learn from so where did you start how, how was your childhood how did you end up in dentistry um I, I wish to say you know like it'd be it's it's a really terrible story but um I hadn't really thought about a career and I got to, it used to be HSC, HSC, but now it's VCE or whatever year 12 is, wherever you are. And uh, one day the headmaster walked into the room and he said, okay, boys, it's time to decide on your tertiary courses. And I go, okay, you know, and I hadn't really thought about it up to that point. So I said, what are the options? And back then there weren't that many options. They just have one small blue book, a light blue book from Melbourne Uni. So I opened that up, started thumbing through and, oh, dentistry. Yeah, that'd be good. I think that that'd work. So I put it down and that that was about as much thought as went into it, you know, and, and it worked out quite happily. But yeah, it was just a funny story, you know. I just I'd been so obsessed with sort of studying and working. I hadn't even thought about where it was all leading. Were you always someone who was pretty good at school to be able to get in, or was it something that you then really worked hard for to get there? No, I was always pretty good actually. So <laughs> I didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I I, I used to think that um, you could only study four hours a day effectively. Right. Okay. Some people used to beat their brains out and they'd study eight hours a day, 10 hours a day. And, and I thought you were just sort of uh, spinning your wheels after about the first four hours. But if you really studied effectively, I used to do it even during SWATFAC. I did it in four hours a day and um, probably a bit less the rest of the year. So that was how I did it. So you've been obsessed with efficiency and efficacy from the start. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I just you don't want to spend effort for no return really that's that's it that sounds like pretty good advice so you went through dentistry how was uh dental school oh you know for me it was something to be survived <laughs> i don't know i didn't you know i i just thought of yeah it was something to get through and then you, again you just tried to get through you know occasionally you found a subject particularly interesting and you'd put in a bit more sort of work into that but uh you know, it was something to get through and, 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 and survive. And, and, you know, I did and passed all the exams. So, you know, I mean, it was, it was all right, but it was nothing, nothing thrilling. I, the only thing I can particularly remember about university was, um, you know, when you're 18, five years seems like a long time. When you're older, five years seems like a lot less. But I can remember turning up my first day at university, sitting in the CAF, uh, having a cup of tea and thinking, my God, I've got five years ahead of me. And it seemed like it seemed like eternity. It seemed like a life sentence. But anyway, it, it, it passes. Yeah, I think as we get older, the um, uh, each year goes a, a lot quicker. Yeah, yeah, quite right, quite right. So, Mark, tell us about your first few years in private practice. Uh, well, I mean, like a lot of people, I started off working for, for other dentists. Um, it was, I don't know. It, it was it was difficult. I mean, when I think now, you know, if I, if I was going to give myself advice, you know, going back through the years, I would have given myself two pieces of pieces of advice. The first thing would have been to be busy. 
Um, I, I got a sort of part-time job and then another part-time job, but I wasn't really filling the week. And um, I reckon in your first few years of practice, what you really need is to get a lot of miles under the belt, you know, in terms of experience. Um, and I notice nowadays, I mean, everybody wants to say in, you know, the, in the nice suburbs of Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or something like that, but I would have, you know, really gone out into the sticks to get, you know, more experience and more work. You know, I, I think that'd be the first piece of advice I'd give for new dentists. And the other one, which may sound a bit self-serving, but I still think it's true, is I would have learnt more about communication because, you know, you come out and you know all this technical stuff to do, but you just cannot convey it to the patients. And so you end up doing a very sort of humdrum um, sort of dentistry and you de-skill in a few areas. You de-skill in the areas of crown and bridge and endo because you, get to, you can't explain it well, so you get to do it so seldom. So, uh, yeah, that's the two things. I would have kept myself really busy by, you know, possibly travelling to the country if needs be, and I would have done a course on communication. I think that's really good advice. That's the first thing I think of is is being busy and, and moving regionally, I think, makes that a lot easier. Uh, and that's from personal experience. I work in yeah, Port Yeah, well, and- the thing with, with keeping busy is that... Uh, I mean, until you've seen, you know, a thousand pulpituses and, and then, you know, seen which which one's reversible and which ones aren't reversible, you don't really get that feel for it. You know, you've just got to see a lot of cases and get that get that sense of things. So, um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and the other thing is uh, the nice thing about if you are prepared to travel to the country and get a lot of experience, you get to do stuff, you know, like in the city, the temptation's always to send off the surgical extraction, send off the tricky endos, all that sort of stuff. But when the nearest endodontist is a couple of hours away, well, you have a go and, and you know, you find out where your level of competence is and, and, and it improves because you get to do more difficult cases. Absolutely. That's exactly the experience James and I are having right now, actually, in Port Macquarie. We, we're lucky. We've got specialists around, mm-hmm. certainly, but we're also busy. Um, so, things that it definitely helps. I think that's good advice. Yeah, good. So, early on in your career, we all have a lot of challenges. Um, we've all got stories. What, what challenges did you face early on in particular? I mean, early on, uh, I mean, I can remember just the technical side of it, you know, like looking in a mirror, trying to control a, a, a high-speed drill, you know, and, and which way is it going to go and all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, working in a mirror, that that's one of the big technical challenges. Um, I suppose the other big technical challenge is diagnosis. You know, you just sort of... You, you get a bit on diagnosis, you get quite a bit on treatment planning during your course, but until you get out and you're actually, you're the Johnny on the spot, you're the person who's got to make that decision and diagnose the case and work it out, you don't realise that the, the pressures that that brings. I mean, after you're doing it for a decade or a couple of decades, you start to get real confidence in your diagnosis. Um, but it's amazing. I see a lot of young dentists and I see a trend in the profession now where people undervalue diagnosis. I mean, I see practices now giving free checkups and, you know, free initial consultation mm. and all that. And as I as I got older and older, I, I realised that diagnosis was such a critical part of your, your treatment because if you get the diagnosis right, if you work the case out right, right at the start, everything flows beautifully from then on. And if you don't get the diagnosis right, like you miss a bruxism problem or you miss a, 
you know, some other problem. Things just don't go right from then on in. So um, I, I really learned to value diagnosis. The other thing is treatment plans. You know, we were taught a bit about treatment planning, but not a lot during the course. And, you know, you come out and you think, ah, oh, treatment plans are for wimps. I'll just write down a few things and away I go. But the treatment plans make you so much more effective. So I've got so much respect, you know, and in the later well, half or three quarters of my career, I used to spend a long time developing detailed treatment plans for the patients. And once I had the detailed treatment plan, well, then everything just fell into place. And I was so, that's a huge boost for your, your efficiency. And the patients can tell that you know what you're talking about if you've got a clear plan from point A to point B. Yeah, absolutely. And, and over a number of years, I, I did some locum work after I sold my final practice and I'd go around to practices and I'd walk in the door and I'd see the, they'd hand me the notes from the old dentist and the treatment plan would be NV, continue treatment. Next visit, continue treatment. And that's not a treatment plan. If you haven't got it worked out visit by visit, exactly what you're going to do. It's not a treatment plan. You speak about efficiency and that sounds like each time when you, f you see the patient again, you'd be wasting time with figuring out where you're going again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I used to say to the patients, I'm slow at the start and then I'm fast after that because I take <laughs> my time to get things worked out and then once it's worked out, I'll get your treatment done really effectively. And, and they like that. You know, they like to know that it's going to be three appointments you know, one hour, 45 minutes, one hour or whatever it is, you know, and you, you could just tell them exactly what it's going to be, how long you're going to take. And it, yeah, ter terrific. And the patients liked it and it worked so well for me in, in terms of efficiency. Absolutely. So then you, so you started out in pu uh, private practice. Mm -hmm. Did you travel? Did you go to London for a bit? Yeah, I spent a year in London and, th and that was good experience. I mean, over there, because the patients aren't paying for it, um, well, mm. a lot of the patients aren't paying for it. You get to do a tremendous amount of crown and bridge, you know. So that was that was a really good experience, um, getting to a lot of crowns, a lot of um, you know, yeah, advanced sort of bridges. Yeah, it was it was just a really good training for the dexterity because until your hands have gone round and cut, you know, two or three hundred crowns, you you don't have that skill in the fingers. Mm. Absolutely. So that was with the NHS um, system as well. And I'm guessing you would have picked up a lot of speed from that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. Forced speed, I would. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, turn up the pressure on the air turbine and away you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you came back and ran, ran your own practice, two different practices? Yeah, I had, I had one for 14 years and one for eight years after that. And uh, yeah, they were both solo practices. Um, and both of them, actually, the, the, one of the really interesting things was when I started, the uh, had my first practice, the one that I own, the first one that I owned, 14 years, um, I started off and I, I just sort of thought, you know, the secret to success is just to work long hours and work hard. And so I was working five and a half days a week, um, which is a pretty grueling schedule when you're in dentistry, I think. Um, but anyway, five and a half days a week. And I, then I started listening to a guy called Omar Reed, who you may have heard of. I think he's still around. He's in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and I used to fly over to Phoenix, Arizona to listen to Omar and, and talk with him. And uh, what, one thing he said was, uh, cut a day off your week and you'll become 
more, uh, you become more productive. So I was working five and a half days, and I cut it to four and a half days on Omer's advice. And what do you know, the turnover of the practice actually went up. I was turning over more in four and a half days than I was in five and a half. And I thought, this is good. I think I'll eliminate Saturday. So I cut Saturday out of the schedule. And suddenly with working four days a week, I was producing more than I was in, in five and a half previously. I, I worked subsequently for the remainder of my career, always four days a week, which was very nice. You know, I think there has to be a limit, like you can't go to no days and produce more. <laughs> but uh, I worked the remainder of my career four days a week, Monday to Thursday, which was a great, great way to be, you know, always getting a long weekend. A lot of dentists say or talk about four days a week as being the ideal and I think that's something I'd like to work towards. Um, why do you think the production actually went up when you cut your hours down? Because I think when you've got a long week and you're tired and you've sort of, you know, I, I think five and a half days a week long term would burn you out. So I think when you've got this long week and you're, you're tired and you're not, you know, very focused, the tendency is just to sort of futz around and just sort of fill in the hours rather than actually do something productive. Whereas when you've got a, a short week and you know you're only there four days and then you know you've got a three-day weekend, the thing is to really knuckle down, get the work done, get it, uh, get it over and get out of there. So that's why I think it is. Um, yeah, it, it, just, it just really increases your productivity. Now, one really interesting story... Um, was uh, I actually lost a hygienist at one stage. I was working without a hygienist. Um, and um, this was later on in, in my career. And my production actually went up, me on my own, versus me plus a hygienist. That is, one person wow. was producing more than two. And again, I think it was that effect of the focus and the fact that the patients really knew I was there, I meant business. And that they, yeah, it was, it was quite phenomenal that a dentist on his own could produce more than a dentist plus a hygienist. So, yeah, focus is a huge, huge thing in productivity. You must have had a lot of your efficiency principles at work. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just sort of, I think one of my favorite quotes is that if you want to get a job done, ask a lazy person to do it because they are sure to find an easier way. <laughs> and I think I must be the laziest person out there because I'm always looking for an easier way to get things done. Um, so. <laughs> Sounds like a good trade-off. That's perfect. So, um, yeah, through your years, you obviously learned communication pretty well, efficiency and some other things, and you started, you started teaching five or so years ago. What brought that on? Um, I was just thinking to myself one day, one of the great shames every dentist I've ever talked to, ever visited or ever watched, they all have unique and interesting ways of doing things that are actually, I mean, I've never met a dentist who I didn't learn something from. Um, even somebody who's, you know, like, and the scale of things probably isn't a very, you know, top-notch dentist, but if you watch them or talk to them or listen to them, you'll always find that they've got something interesting to teach you. And I thought to myself, when I went out as a, a, a locum, I'm going into these practices, and I thought everybody ran a really good practice. And I'm in these practices, and a lot of them are just very underperforming, very, you know, mediocre. 
And I thought at some point, maybe I do know a thing or two. So I thought, I'll get out there and start spreading that bit of knowledge that I have. Because I, I think it's a shame when dentists retire, you know, that knowledge is lost to, to the profession. And dentist I know, he's, he's absolutely fantastic at fixed, uh, at removable dentures. That's his expertise. He's brilliant at it. But he never sort of passed that knowledge on to the next generation of dentists. So now that he's retiring, that knowledge has been lost forever. Well, I hope to sort of, you know, at least put my knowledge back into the profession so the next generation can hear it and use it. I think that's fantastic. And it's so true that every dentist I've observed has their own little little bit that they know and you can learn from each and every single one. So we definitely appreciate when people are passing on their knowledge, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean... The, the thing I say is I've, I've never seen a dentist who was so, oh, I, I hate to use the word bad, but so, you know, sort of ordinary that, that I couldn't learn something from them. And I've never seen one so good that they couldn't improve at something. So no matter how good you are, you can always improve. No matter how, you know, ordinary you are, you've always got something you can teach other dentists. So, um, yeah, I... It's just good to be able to share that information. Let's talk a bit about communication. For some people, they find that really easy. They seem to just communicate with patients, no problems, and seem to get acceptance of their treatment plans. Some struggle. Do you think they're beyond help? Well, I think I'm a good um, good example of someone who can be helped because I, I'm not a natural communicator. It's all been learnt it's entirely a learnt skill for me. Um, I don't have particularly high levels of empathy. I don't have, uh, you know, I've not, never been a skilled orator. So I, whatever communication skills I've got have been learnt. Now, the thing is, if you look at a lot of dentists who say, oh, I'm a fantastic communicator, I get on really well with patients, and then you look at their practice and they're doing sort of really, you know, very underservicing their patients. Um, I, I saw a dentist a while ago in, in a capital city, and this dentist, very prominent dentist, very high level of skills, um, very sort of, and, and very full of himself too, <laughs> but um, had an extremely mediocre practice. And he thought he was tremendous at communication. And when I was watching him, it was just he was just terrible, you know, like re really bad. So it's interesting how dentists report their communication skills and how they actually are can often be quite at variance. The thing I think you, the way you can tell whether you're really good at communication is if you're getting to do a lot of comprehensive treatment plans. That is, you're working out, you know, diagnosing ideal dentistry for people and getting regular um, high levels of acceptance, then you can say you're good at communication. And I, I see very, well, I, I, don't, I can't say I've seen any dentists who haven't taken training who are good in that regard. Mm. So we all need to learn something no matter how good we are. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, let, me, let me tell you one story. Then This is an, another dentist I know in, in a capital city. And again, fabulous skills. This dentist has fabulous skills and very good communicationally, but he talks and talks and talks and talks and talks, so uses a lot of time unnecessarily. And he came along to my course, and, you know, I, I just teach this sort of thing where you can explain treatment in two minutes or less. 
And so he, he came along to the course and he, he, he went back to his practice and did the, you know, what, what was asked of him, you know, the two-minute explanation. And the patient said yes. And it was a big treatment plan. I don't know what he, he think he told me. It was 50000 or $60,000. So the patient said yes in two minutes, this big treatment plan. And he, he was thrilled that, you know, it, it didn't take half an hour or whatever. But the thing, his comment was, shutting up hurts so bad. <laughs> and I love that comment, you know, shutting up hurts so bad. <laughs> I think sometimes it is harder to, to let um, the patient speak or to, to not just keep talking. And that's something we all have to learn. I think I struggle with that as well. I, I do talk a lot and I, I try to, I'm trying to really care for my patient, but maybe I am overdoing it at times. So you talk about doing a, a treatment plan presentation in under two minutes. How do you do that? Well, there, there is a bit of a build-up to it. I mean, what I teach is a systematic approach, you know, step one, two, three, four. So step one is you get rapport, and, and there are a number of things you can do to get rapport. I mean, one of the most common things is just to give the patient a proper greeting when they walk into the room. I visited a dentist in a capital city a while ago, and this dentist used to sit there typing up his notes at the computer, and the next patient would be brought in, and without even looking around, the dentist would just wave his hand over his left shoulder and say, I have a seat, I'll be with you in a minute, right? You know, mm-hmm. so that dentist has lost rapport even before he starts. So, you know, but there, there's about 12 things you can teach that help get rapport. None of them take any time. So step one's get rapport. Step two, you've got to analyse the situation, what's going on in the patient's mouth. But the thing that dentists forget is as you analyse, you've got to actually inform the patient, keep them in the loop. Uh, Quite often the patients are lying there and we start looking in their mouth and we start speaking in a foreign language that they've got no idea what it is. And if you've ever been sitting in a room where people start speaking a foreign language, what do you do? You actually tend to just tune out. So the thing is, as you're examining the patient and you're charting things to the nurse, is just to keep speaking in plain English. So you keep the patient listening and alert to the conversation. Um, but there's a you know another half a dozen things you can do that'll help to get uh, you know agitate or, or get the patient out of their complacency. Uh, then you've got to think. You've got to get everything straight in your own head. And then once you've been through those three steps, you've worked out you know the diagnosis, the cost, all that sort of thing. You've been through those three steps. Um, then the explanation doesn't take long at all. It's really very concise, very pointed. I mean, two minutes, you could explain a full mouth case in two minutes. And it, it, it seems amazing to people who haven't done it or haven't seen it in action, but really going on and on and on, on is counterproductive. Um, I was reminded of that the other day. I, I, I went to, um, in the period of about a month, I had two eye appointments, one with an optometrist to get my eyes examined, you know, for for, for glasses or whatever, and one with an ophthalmologist. And when I visited the optometrist, um, this person wanted to give me long explanations of everything they were finding. And so they took pictures of the back of my eye and they spent about 15 minutes explaining. And and I, all I wanted to know was, the, was, was my eye okay? You know, like they could have said, oh, everything's perfect. And I, we would have moved on. And I would have been perfectly happy. 
but they felt they had to give long explanations of what was happening. And it was really just so counterproductive. I went along to the ophthalmologist. He looked into my eyes and said, perfect. So <laughs> in, in one word, he had achieved more, like without annoying me or boring me, he'd achieved more than the other person that achieved in 15 minutes. And quite often dentists, we're the optometrist, we're giving these huge explanations of where the nerve is in the tooth and the patient couldn't care less, you know, really. They just couldn't care less. Or doesn't follow you and then you actually lose the patient's trust as well. Well, that's it, yeah. Often um, trying to justify yourself is counterproductive. The more you try to justify yourself, the worse it gets. So, yeah. So you said build rapport, inform the patient or, or agitate the patient so to speak, and then think. When you say think, you mean get the cost right, get the diagnosis, obviously. What other bits are to that? Well, actually, when I originally was setting out to explain treatment plan or treatment explanations to dentists, I didn't realise think was a step. But what I noticed was time and time again, the dentist would start just shooting the breeze. Oh, well, maybe we might need to do a root filling, but we'll have to look at that. But um, then we could think about a crown or maybe we could do a bridge in that area. And, you know, they just start sort of rambling on, you know, and all that's doing is that's just confusing and annoying the patient. So what I teach is you've got to actually get, you've got to think things through and get it all straight in your head. You need the diagnosis you need some options for treating it, you need to know the costs, and you need to know the, any warnings you're going to give the patient. And you've got to get that absolutely crystal clear in your own head before you start explaining. It's no good, I'll just start explaining and it'll all work out in the end. You know, you've got to get it crystal, because if you've got even 5% of confusion inside your head, by the time it comes out of your mouth, it's like 50% confusion and the patient doesn't know what the heck you're talking about. Dental implants are now the standard of care, but for me, it was something I was lacking. I knew quite a bit about implants. I'd done a fair bit of theory, but I'd never placed an implant. I was looking for someone to take me from zero to one to 100 and on. And that's why I partnered with Mordent. I found the support from their initial coursework through to placement of my first implant and then doing the live surgery course overseas was incredible. I've now placed a number of implants. I feel so much more confident and it's truly sparked a love and an interest in a whole new facet of dentistry. As always, we're offering our listeners a discount to help you get involved and help you go from zero to one to 100. If you're looking to take the first step into implants or if you're someone who has some experience and wants to take it further, check out dentalheadstart.com slash mordent and get started on your implant journey. I think that's excellent advice. I've definitely been in that situation. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I was watching a dentist. Sure. I, I'm, I'm deliberately being extremely vague because I don't want to identify anybody. But I was watching a dentist in another Australian capital city a while ago. And this dentist explained to the patient all about root canals. And when the patient left, I was a bit curious. And I said to the dentist, Tell me, I didn't think the patient needed a root canal. Why did you explain about root canals? And she said, oh, I just got a bit confused. And I, I, yeah, I don't know why I told them that. 
<laughs> you know, and, and they've used up 10 minutes of time. They've confused the patient. The patient's gone out the door. Do I need a root canal? Do I not? Need, you know, they don't. It's just, yeah. So that's what happens when you open your mouth before you think. And it's interesting. Here I am. I've been doing dentistry, well, for 38 years. That's a, that's a bloody long time, right? <laughs> and I'm not embarrassed to say to the patient, you know, let's say I've examined them, I'm looking at the x-rays, I'm not embarrassed to say to the patient, I just need to think about this for a minute. It's quite complicated, so just give me a minute. I'm going to, you know, think about it. And I genuinely am thinking about it. I'm sitting there working out the diagnosis, the treatment option, all this sort of stuff. I am actually genuinely thinking about it, and I'm not embarrassed to say that. And so many of just feel that that's somehow a sign of weakness or, you know, that you don't know what you're doing. But... What I've found is when you say to the patient, I just need to think this out and work it all through, and you actually sit there, look at the x-rays, hmm, hmm, hmm. And then what, finally, when it, when it all comes clear in my mind, I say, I've got it. And then I turn to the patient <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, imagine your health practitioner says, I've got it. You know, you'd be like, Eureka. oh, yes, that's it. Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. The excitement's building, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So when you're doing these presentations, do you use photos, intraoral or DSLR photos? I use DSLR because I prefer to show patients the full dental arch. I think at least then they've got a chance of understanding it. But we show these ultra close-up pictures of teeth and I don't think patients can understand it. And in my seminar... I show this ultra close-up part of the human anatomy and I, I ask the dentist, what is that? And I get, you know, oh, it's the trachea, it's this, it's that, it's the other thing. Well, it turns out it's actually the external auditory meatus, the ear. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. when you see it ultra close-up, it's very hard to tell what it is, right? And I think with yeah. with de- with patients and, and dentistry and teeth they're not used to seeing teeth ultra close up so if you just show them a one-off so i always show people the full arch if i'm going to show them pictures at all do you always show pictures or is that something you only sometimes use um if I, if i'm showing them a big case and it's hard to sort of visualize what the end result's going to be i'll show them a picture so what i'll do is i'll say Here's an example of a job I did a while ago. This is the person before, and here's the same person after. And your teeth are very similar to that. Do you have like a booklet of your before and afters, or do you just have a few records that you can bring up in the right case? Um, I think it's very good to have it in, in a book. Um, I think this idea of putting it up on a computer screen, I mean, that's that's okay, but I preferred to have a hard copy that I could turn around and show them. But the other thing is uh, you can buy such books on the internet. You know, Ron Goldstein has mm. one and all this sort of thing. But I think it's so much more powerful to show them your own work. I mean, to say, here's a job I did a while ago. The person's teeth are very similar to yours. Here's them before, here's them after. Um, That is so powerful. Um, So I'd I'd encourage every young dentist to get a DSLR um, and start taking photos of before and after cases right from the start of their career. Um, They'll find it just... and, And also it's very... I mean, it's great for records, clinical records. Um, It's great for Medico-legal issues. 
Um, it's great for self-improvement because you look at your befores, you look at the afters and go, oh, I wish I'd done this instead of that. So it's great for improvement. And it's just fantastic for showing your next patient about the sort of work you do. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think it might take a little while to build up the the records and cases where you've done those things, but it's definitely something I'm going to try and work towards. Yeah, I mean, just, just take a single crown, you know, so that's that's a good start, you know. Here's before, here's after, and they can see, you know, this big gold gob of amalgam and this beautiful looking tooth. Now, who wouldn't want that? Absolutely. So, so do you show your patients x-rays when you're explaining treatment? Um, no, no, I'm not a great believer in that. Um, the issue with it is they don't understand them. Basically, that's it. I mean, like when the optometrist was showing me the back of my eye, and she's pointing out all these features in the back of my eye. And I just have to take her word for it because I've got no idea what the back of an eye should look like. And it's the same with x-rays. You're pointing out these little sort of um, interproximal lesions to the patient. Well, they've got no idea what a normal interproximal looks like. So they've certainly got no idea what a hole looks like. They've got to take your word for it when you say, see that black spot there, that's a hole. They've got to take your word for it. Um, one way you'll, you'll also come to the realisation that patients don't understand them is if you start explaining x-rays to them and after about five minutes, you know, you think you're on fire and you're showing them this and showing them that and they'll look at you and they'll say, what are the white things? And you suddenly realise <laughs> they've got no idea what you've been talking about for the last five minutes. So, no, I'm not a great believer I had a patient once years ago, and this is going back so many years. This is when we used to take film x-rays and staple them onto a clear plastic sheet. And uh, a patient said, you know, in quite an aggressive fashion, can I see my x-rays? And I said, certainly. And I just handed them the sheet with all the x-rays stapled on. And they held them upside <laughs> yeah. down and back to front. And, and then they handed them back to me. And I said, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could have been a trap for young players, 15 minutes of explaining. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've got no problems. You want to see them, you can see them. But, you know, don't think I'm going to sit there, you know, and waste my time trying to give you a lesson, um, lesson on how to read them. The interesting thing, though, um, I find a lot of dentists struggle reading x-rays. Um there was a great case on DPR a while ago where a dentist put out uh, about a, a root filling that looked unsatisfactory on upper molar. And the dentist asked the question, should I redo the root filling before to do doing the um, crown on that tooth? Uh, they said there's no, inter there's no periapical lesion on the tooth. And I looked at the x-ray and there was a periapical lesion on the tooth. The dentist just couldn't mm -hmm. see it. <laughs> so it's interesting, you know, yeah. patients certainly can't read x-rays, but, but dentists, a lot of them struggle with it too. Yeah, worrying thought, that's for mm. sure. So what I've, I've wanted to ask you this. So I hear, I actually read your blog, I see some of your videos and bits and pieces and I, I want to get an idea of how you would present, when you present a case relatively short amount of time, so a minute to two, how do you go through that? Could Could you kind of mock a case for us now so say a patient has a bit of perio needs a couple of crowns a couple of implants a couple of fillings something like that how would you go about structuring that discussion yeah well the thing with it is if you want to that was a more complex sort of case isn't it a couple of implants a couple of crowns yeah, yeah, a bit of yeah, perio yeah. all that sort of stuff 
So you'd be talking, you know, of the order of, you know, the low 20s, something like that in terms of cost. So that that's a fairly complicated mm-hmm. case. And if you get into explaining each of those items individually, you could be there for a long while. So I'd probably say to the patient something like this, um, having already brought them up to speed on all the things that are happening in their mouth through step two, which we discussed earlier. Yep, yep. I would then, you know, once I've sat the chair up, I'd sit around in front of them, eye to eye, knee to knee, and I'd say, um, you know, David, there's a lot going on in your mouth. Of course, you're aware of it because you've, you've heard it all during the examination. Uh, so I think you've got two options. The first option is we can just keep patching things up as they go. Now, the advantage with that, it's the quickest, cheapest way of taking care of your teeth. But the disadvantage with that is your teeth are on a downward trajectory. You're you're breaking some teeth, some teeth are wearing, tipping, moving. You've got issues with your gums. So we can keep patching things up, but your teeth are on the downward trajectory. Um, The other option would be to totally fix your mouth. Now, to do that, we've got to replace some missing teeth, we've got to build up some of the weak teeth, and we've got to get your gums in shape. Now, I haven't worked it out exactly, but ballpark, that's going to be about $24,000. Is that something you'd consider, or is that just out of the question? Yeah, that sounds like a really good way to, to communicate nice and quick. What if the patient says, no, that's out of the question, however, and then kind of come to a middle ground? Yeah. So that's one of the possible things I'd say. So I'd say, there's no way. I just couldn't afford that. That's, And then you ask in a very, very gentle way, you know, very gentle because you're asking about their personal finances. You say, well, can you give me some idea? I mean, what would be financially feasible for you? What, what could you afford? But asked in a very gentle, very sort of empathetic way, and they'll normally come back to you. They'll say, well, I, I think I can afford $8,000, right? Or whatever they say. So then you've got to put your thinking hat back on again. You say, well, okay, I just need to think about this for a minute. So what you've got to do is you've got to plan out what's the best way you can spend $8,000 on that person's mouth. And it may be to do one of the crowns, you know, get the perio in order and patch up the rest of the fillings or whatever the thing is. So say, okay, I've got it. What we'll do is we'll do that, that crown there because that tooth really is falling apart and it could collapse completely. Um, we'll, we'll get your gums in shape. We'll fill the others to sort of hold them. And then we can plan out over the next five, four or five years as finances permit to finish off the rest. How does that sound? I think um, a lot of us can put that into practice pretty quickly, and I think for me personally, it'll save it'll save me time. But I think I'll, it'll give just as much um, care for the patient and and helping them understand what's what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, the thing is, they don't want the chapter and verse on the technical details. What one guy who taught me that years ago. Now, I, I've never actually used this expression that he used, but but it was very instructive in my thinking. Um, this guy used to do a lot of big cases, very comprehensive sort of dentist, huge number of big cases. And he had somebody come in 
And he looked at their mouth and it was going to be, let's say, I'll just pull a figure out, but it's a few years old. Let's say it was going to be $30,000 to rebuild this person's mouth. So that's a decent sized case. But they'd had a friend who'd come in the month earlier and had their mouth rebuilt for $20,000. And so he told her it's going to be $30,000. And the patient very aggressively said to him, how can it be 30000 My friend had their whole mouth done. It was only 20000 And he looked at them and said, well, hers was a reconstruction. Yours is a resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've never that used that line. But, but the thing was, yeah. the simplicity of it is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, you know, in, he could have got into, well, we've got to do a cantilever and we've got to do this and we've got to do that, you know, and all this sort of technical jargon. But he just cut right through, you know, reconstruction, resurrection. I just thought it was beautiful. <laughs> Using an analogy or a metaphor to get the point across very simply. Do you, do you use metaphors or, or analogies in your discussion with your patients? I'm trying to think. Uh, they probably arise situationally. I mean, um, hmm, yeah, none, none of them come to mind. If one of them comes to mind, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. And the other question I had, um, a lot of people talk about, and it's very important, getting the patients or understanding the patient's goals, where they actually want to go with their teeth. So, you know, you're not doing full records for a patient who just wants to patch something or you're not missing the patient who actually wants to care for their teeth. Um, do you make a special effort to find their goals or find out their goals and how do you go about that? No. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> in, in a word, No. I mean, the thing with it is, all right, so let, let's look at how patients enter the practice. There, there's two paths to entering the practice, aren't they? First off, they've come in with an emergency. And so then you've got to deal with that emergency. So that's that's the first thing. And then once you've dealt with that emergency, then you say, gee, you know, David, there's a lot going on in your mouth. You've got some broken teeth, some tilting, you know, all this sort of stuff. I think you've got two choices. You can actually just keep going from emergency to emergency or you can come back and we can do a comprehensive checkup and we'll try and work out a plan so, you know, we stabilise your teeth. What would you like to do? Yeah. And they'll, they'll tell you, oh, I couldn't care less. I'm off. See you later. You fixed it. Goodbye. You know, I'll, I'll come back when I have another broken tooth. You go, fair enough. So that, that's, you know, or they'll say, okay, that sounds great. But if somebody's coming in for a checkup, you know, like, like they come back for that checkup, I assume that they want their teeth examined and comprehensively diagnosed. Um, and equally, if somebody rings up the practice and says, I, I want a checkup, I assume they want good dentistry and they want a comprehensive diagnosis and a treatment plan. So that's what I give them. That makes a lot of sense. So you do, you ask the question in that emergency situation, but otherwise it's, it's insinuated. Yeah. I mean, have you ever felt the thing that I don't ever want the patients to feel is like I'm manipulating them? Absolutely. And all this asking these qualifying questions. I mean, I've been to courses where they say, you know, you ask this question and that question. How do you feel about your teeth? You know, what do you think about long term? You know, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, patients know they're being set up for a big sales spiel when, when you're doing that stuff. I mean, they, they, you know, they're not stupid. Yeah, absolutely. It works against <laughs> I mean, you know, really, all you're doing is throwing up barriers and making them wary about what you're going to present by going through all that routine, in my, in my view. So, 
you know, if somebody comes into my chair for a checkup, I'm going to give them a comprehensive plan and they can accept it or reject it. But I'm going to assume they want the best until they inform me otherwise. It makes a lot of sense. So you, you spend a lot of time talking about communication, but you're also really quite passionate about efficiency. Is that right? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, um, the, the thing that I think every practice, I, I think of a practice like a three-legged stool, right? Yep. The first leg of the stool is you need marketing, you know, like we'd call it PR or whatever it is. You, you've got to have a flow of patients in the door. So that's the first part of it to have some sort of image in the community that draws patients in. And it may be just I'm the cheapest in town. You know, that's a position, mm. not one I would take. No. But, I mean, that is so. But anyway, that's the first leg of the three-legged stool. The second leg is once people come in the door, you've got to be able to present treatment in a way they can understand and accept. Um, so that gets some treatment on the book. And then the third thing is once the treatment's on the book is to be able to do it efficiently in a time-effective manner. Mm. And it amazes me how you, I mean, I don't, it's terrible to say, but I don't actually put anything on about efficiency on DPR anymore because if dentists, if, if you suggest to dentists that they don't need to take an hour and a half to do a crown, they'll scream at you. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I just don't put that stuff out anymore. I, I keep it to myself or the people who come to the seminars. It's a bit sad because it's a, probably a minority that uh, truly think that way. I think um, no patient wants to sit in our chair for longer than they have to, but they also want the best quality treatment. So if we can efficiently get the job done to a high standard, that's actually better than taking longer. Yeah. Think about this. If, you real, if you've really trained your hands or your reflexes to know how to do a crown prep, you've got a fresh high-speed burr and you put the burr on the tooth, put your foot on the pedal and you cut, <laughs> how long is it going to take to prep a crown? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not going to take too long, but it takes a long while because dentists spend ages. Instead of cutting the tooth, which is you take the burr to the depth you want in the tooth and then move around the tooth at that depth, peeling the enamel off, mm. that is cutting a tooth and it's like a surgical procedure. What they do instead of that is they put the tooth on the outside, of the, the burr on the outside of the tooth and gradually abrade the tooth away till they get down to what they want. And that takes absolutely forever. But the other thing is, I would argue, I would argue this, in, in general surgery, it's known that the longer you have someone open, the greater the morbidity from that surgical operation. Well, I think the longer you have the tooth open, the greater the likelihood of getting an irreversible pulpitis. Mm. So if you can do a beautiful prep that's absolutely got beautiful margins, perfect reduction, and you can do that in four minutes, mm. that's a much better service to the patient than uh, taking 30 or 40 minutes to do the same prep. You'll get a lot less pulpitises. You'll get a lot less patients coming back with sensitive teeth afterwards if you're efficient in how you work. It makes a lot of sense. It's certainly better. The patients certainly want it. There's no doubt about that. So graduates, oh, yeah. graduates are pretty inefficient. What do you think are some tips you can give grads to help them? Um, well, the first thing, I mean, the first tip I would give anyone is you've got to wear your loops. Like you really do. You know, like I would not even, I, w I won't extract a tooth without loops. I won't, 
I won't do anything without loops, you know, and it amazes me the number of dentists I see who work without loops, and it's just absolutely incredible. I mean, you cannot see what you're doing if you do not have loops. I was uh, demonstrating in a student clinic a while ago, and the students turned up and they didn't have their loops with them, and I knew they had to buy loops as part of their course. And I said, where are your loops? They said, oh, in our lockers. I said, okay, effectively, immediately, if you're not wearing your loops, I will not mark off any of your work. (laughs) (laughs) And so they all started wearing the loops. But loops make you so much more effective because you see what you're doing. You're not sort of guessing. And and yeah, so that would be my first piece of advice. My next piece of advice would be to, I mean, the thing is, when you haven't built the dexterity, you can't just put your foot on the pedal and go flat out all the time. But certainly with a crown prep, let's say you're preparing the buckle side of a crown. Mm. I would put my foot flat on the pedal. I would take the burr to the depth that I want, which is about a 1.25, 1.5 millimetre reduction. And I would just prep at that depth, peeling the enamel off the tooth rather than working from the outside of the tooth, abrading it away. And that will make you vastly more efficient Absolutely. if you learn to cut instead of abraid. They're both really good tips. My biggest nightmare is forgetting my loops. I don't know if I could do dentistry without them. And then the, the tip about cutting, I think that's really important. It's something I actually learned that from, I think it was Lincoln Harris's work. Um, he was talking about that and that changed things for me as well. I think that's really good, really good advice. What about systems or um, more practice-orientated things? It's um, it's tough. For I mean, I can give new grads um, all these sorts of pieces of advice, uh, and I mean, we're specifically aiming at new grads today, aren't we? Absolutely. But the problem is, most of them are working in the practice, you know, in de- practices owned by other dentists. So they're working for other dentists, and the thing is, the other dentists may be horrifically (laughs) inefficient (laughs) and they force the grad to work in that that way. If If I only had one efficiency tip to give, though, this would be it. I mean, this one is is the holy grail of efficiency tips. If you think about, you know, like superheroes, every superhero's got a special power, you know, Spider Man, Superman, you know, all these sorts of special you know, superheroes. Well, what is a dentist's superpower? Well, the superpower for a dentist is that they are allowed to diagnose and treat patients, diagnose and treat. That's the superpower that a dentist has. And in so many offices I go into, sure, the dentist is diagnosing and treating, but then they're doing a whole heap of other things that they don't need to do. They're filling in lab sheets, they're ringing up the lab. They're pouring up models. They're, you know, just there's, there's a whole, you know, they're, they're opening packets. They're putting um, triplex tips on the, uh, you know, the, high, the air water syringe. They're, they're getting burrs out of a drawer. They're getting matrix bands out of a drawer. They're, you know, just if you look at all the things they're doing that could be delegated to a nurse, and if you want to become more efficiency efficient, Look at your day and say, how much of the day am I diagnosing and treating? And how much of the day am I doing other stuff that could be delegated to a nurse or could be delegated to the front desk person? All that's a, 
And you'll be amazed. You'll probably find when you first do it that you're spending half your day doing stuff that you don't need to do. Now, a practice I went and did a locum job in a while ago in a capital city of Australia, this practice, it took me as hard as I could work, it took me 12 minutes to get a patient out the door. Yeah. And that entire 12 minutes could have been delegated to nurses, right? So if I was seeing a dozen patients a day, that's 12 by 12, 144 minutes a day. <laughs> it's taking me just to dismiss patients, right? Delegate that all, give that all to the nurses, and suddenly I've got over two hours of productive time per day. So in this practice, to get a patient out the door, what I had to do was I had to write down their treatment plan on a sheet of paper. Then I had to type the treatment plan into the computer. Then I had to tell the patient what the treatment plan was. Then I had to walk them out to the front desk. I had to hand over the sheet of paper to the person at the front desk. Um, I then had to tell uh, the patient, the person at the front desk verbally what was on that sheet of paper. I then had to walk back to the surgery and type in the patient notes. So it was, it was 12 minutes times the number of patients I saw in the day. So it, this is the holy grail of efficiency. Just stop doing things that aren't dentistry. Just diagnose, treat, diagnose, treat. Now, if you're a new graduate and you don't have enough staff to do that, well, you're basically screwed. You've got to do a lot <laughs> of work that you... But, you know, I mean, that's... That's but, where it's yeah, at. You can have that in your mind. You can be working towards that no matter where you are. And I think, um, yeah, you could put some graduates will probably be able to positively influence their practice if they can. And um, some are in good practices where that mostly is already done for them. So that's pretty good. So what else have you learned from locuming? Um, well, it was, it was quite a surprise how inefficient some practices were. It was quite a surprise how bad at communication some practices were. I, I was in a practice a while ago in in a regional town and a uh, patient came in and, um, uh, oh, well, actually a series of patients came in and next thing you know, one by one, they're all booking in for crowns and various other things. And the nurse eventually said, how are you doing that? How is this happening? <laughs> That's not normal. <laughs> yeah, that's not normal. Uh, one practice I went to it was not long after there was some dental scheme, e EPC, e anyway, yeah, there yeah, was some yeah. dental scheme that ended and they hadn't done a crown in um, in about a month and I booked in five in one week. <laughs> <laughs> they would have then hired you every month. Yeah. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself early on, um, what things do you think you could have said that would have helped bring you to where you are now faster? Well, I mean, I, I think we did start off the talk with this and, and the two things were, one would be learn communication skills and the, and the second thing would be make sure I got in a practice where I had a lot of, you know, big flow of patients so I was busy all the time. Uh, I guess there would be a third thing that I'd probably add to that list is don't think that technical excellence will make you successful. Um, I've seen dentists who are, you know, fairly ordinary from a technical standpoint who have fabulous practices, and I've seen dentists who are absolutely incredible from a technical standpoint have very, very mediocre practices. 
Um, so yeah, don't think the technical mastery. And, and you know, when I first graduated, I was I was flying all around the place doing endo courses and perio courses and oral med courses and oral surgery courses. And you know, my production didn't change. But the first time I did a communication course and learned how to explain things to patients, all of a sudden there was a big spike in the graph, and I thought, wow, you know, this is cool. Yeah, you got to get patients to say yes before you're doing those. Those procedures. Yeah, and I, and by, uh, you know, and I don't want anybody to think that I'm putting down technical no. mastery. I mean, it's great to be technically skilled, and I would encourage all dentists to do that. But just don't think that that is the aspect that's going to make you successful. It, it's actually your ability to explain treatment that will make you successful. That makes a lot of sense. So you you're working under well the relaxed dentist. You've retired from clinical dentistry. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The, this year I didn't re-register. I oh, just, congratulations. Uh, How's it feel? Thank, thank you. Yeah. I thought 38 years was enough, you know. I just sort of <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, i got a few years ahead of me, that's for sure. So um, mm. you do a blog uh, and you do courses. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, well, if you want to go, uh, it's either on, you can follow on Facebook or at the website, um, therelaxeddentist.com or Facebook slash The Relaxed Dentist. Um, so I, either of those places. Um, I, I send out one blog post a week and I always try to make it something interesting and relevant. Um, last week, actually, I, I sent out one that I, I've been going to the qualifying of the Australian Open, watching the, the best, you know, really yeah, good tennis yeah. players. And it struck me how that um, tennis players... Uh, you know, I mean, they're incredible players, number 250 in the world. It's absolutely amazing to watch. They're so good. Yep. And yet they barely earn a living. And yet, the you know, the players who are number one or two or five in the world are earning a huge living. And it struck me that you are, you've only got to be just sort of improve a little bit and you can massively improve your results. And I think that's the way in dentistry, you know, like you go into practices and uh, they look like they're doing dentistry, but then at the end of the day, they're turning over $300,000 a year and, and barely making a living. Mm. And yet you, you learn a bit and you become a bit better at what you do and you can suddenly make a, a, a fabulous living. And, um, yeah, it struck me a very good analogy, the tennis players. So that, that was this week's blog post, but there's one that comes out every week. I read that one. I thought that made a lot of sense. Do, yeah. do you play tennis? Yeah, I do. And so do you have courses coming up? Yeah, I've got one coming up in Melbourne on the 9th of March and one coming up in Auckland. And plus I do practice visits. So I've got a few of those coming up where I go out to practices and uh, talk to groups of dentists at practices. So um, they're, they're the two ways. I, I, yeah, probably Melbourne the 9th of March would be the, the best opportunity to see me if, if anybody's interested. Um, I, I, th I think that's going to be a good good number and we always get a... You know, we, we get people from all around Australia and occasional New Zealander. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Mark Hassad. Um, we appreciate you coming on to give us a bit of knowledge, give us um, or give back a little bit to the community. So we appreciate it very much. We'll see you at a course sometime soon. All right. Thanks, David. All the best and good luck with your um, dental head start. Thank you. See you later. All right. That was Dr. Mark Hassad. Check him out at therelaxeddentist.com. And if you like this, we'd appreciate it if you share it with a friend, take a screenshot, send it to a group of friends and dental colleagues and let us know what you think. For now, we'll see you next episode.